Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, August 11th, we are studying Judges chapter 19, verses 1 through 30. The book of Judges continues with accounts of the days when there was no king in Israel. We've already seen one Levite of questionable character in his interactions with Micah and then the entire tribe of Dan. And today's text will turn our attention to another less than faithful Levite and his concubine. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Steve Andrews. Pastor Andrews serves at St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Lee's Summit, Missouri. Pastor Andrews, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thanks for having me again. So as we get started this morning, Pastor Andrews, we're looking at Judges 19. And in terms of the narrative, the the tale that is being told here in the book of Judges, there doesn't seem to be a huge connection between chapters 17 and 18 and then 19 through the end of the book. It seems that we're going to switch to a new account. But the real connection is in this matter of what we read in 19 verse 1, in those days when there was no king in Israel. That's going to be the the more thematic connection between the previous account and this one. Just Talk a little bit about that, about that context and how that's going to color what we're going to read today. Sure. I mean, so we, we have this general sense in Judges that you're going through the book fairly chronologically as you go through the different deliverers that they have, and then you get to these latter chapters and you lose that, that sense of chronology. Uh, it just becomes generic in those days when there was no king in Israel, and that phrase would apply well, sort of apply through the entire phrase, uh, the entire book of Judges. Uh, the, the one thing we could talk about there is that God is their king, and so this is actually showing a, a rejection of the Lord already before you get to that in First Samuel um, with Saul in 1048. But with our context for this particular chapter, then, as we're looking at the events that follow chapter 19 and verse 20, you know, in those days is probably a simple reference to somewhere in the book of Judges itself, somewhere in that time frame, which is, you're going to put you in the 1300s BC, 1200s BC, probably not much later than that, because we, we have the mention of some names that show up in chapter 20 involved in the event, and it's not likely that those men would have been alive later than that, although the book of Judges covers the time up through the death of Samson in 1049. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah, I, I think it, it can be hard to put a chronology together of the entire book of Judges, particularly these chapters, and I, I think we're well served, given some of the mentions of names, grandsons of Moses, as we heard previously in chapter 18, there'll be a grandson of Aaron that we'll hear in chapter 20. Those those markers would invite us probably to place this chronologically closer to the book of the end of the book of Joshua, Joshua, closer to the beginning of the book of Judges from a chronological perspective. But 
perhaps placed here at the end in order to really set up what's going to happen with King Saul, Samuel and King Saul, and the move toward the monarchy. It seems that these chapters are, are intended to help set that up. So perhaps not chronologically in order, but theologically, definitely preparing for us, as you said, the, the matter of the king that will come, and to see here already that there's no king in Israel Probably he's not just talking about there's no David or Solomon, but the people are rejecting ultimately the Lord already during this time. And certainly we've seen that play itself out during the book of Judges, and, and we'll see it play itself out throughout the history of Israel in the Old Testament. So that's what we're going to be looking at today. Chapter 19, we're, we're starting really a new narrative, a different Levite that we're going to meet today than what we've met previously in chapter 17 18. So we've got quite a few verses for us today, Pastor Andrews. Let's go ahead and, and start jumping into this text. Judges 19, beginning at verse 1. In those days, when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. And his concubine was unfaithful to him. And she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah, and was there some four months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and to bring her back. He had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys, and she brought him into her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. And his father-in-law, the girl's father, made him stay, and he remained with him three days. So they ate and drank and spent the night there. And on the fourth day they arose early in the morning, and he prepared to go. But the girl's father said to his son-in-law, Strengthen your heart with a morsel of bread, and after that you may go. So the two of them sat and ate and drank together. And the girl's father said to the man, Be pleased to spend the night, and let your heart be merry. And when the man rose up to go, his father-in-law pressed him, till he spent the night there again. And on the fifth day he arose early in the morning to depart. And the girl's father said, Strengthen your heart and wait until the day declines. So they ate, both of them. And when the man and his concubine and his servant rose up to depart, his father-in-law, the girl's father, said to him, Behold, now the day has waned toward evening. Please spend the night. Behold, the day draws to its close. Lodge here and let your heart be merry. And tomorrow you shall arise early in the morning for your journey and go home. But the man would not spend the night. He rose up and departed and arrived opposite Jebus, that is Jerusalem. He had with him a couple of saddled donkeys, and his concubine was with him. I'll pause there, Pastor Andrews. It's, it, this is one of those texts where it can be difficult to figure out exactly where to break it up. You just start going in a narrative. So we, we, we meet at the very beginning, in these days when there's no king in Israel. You've got a Levite. He's sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, and he's got himself a concubine from Bethlehem and Judah. So maybe the first thing we should talk about is what what's a concubine? That's not a term we often use in English. Well, I think there's a lot of terms here that it might be helpful to unpack, but a concubine is essentially a wife, but a wife of lesser status. So you think of someone like Solomon, who had many, many wives, and you're described there as... Yeah, I forget the number. Was it 300 wives and 700 concubines or something right. of that sort? And so you can see the connection here. Um, you, you think of Jacob, who has the 12 sons with the four different women, two wives, two concubines. But at the same time, they're all in that 
relationship almost that we would think of as husband and wife. It's just, it's a lesser status. It's something certainly in our culture we would, we would look down upon, um, but we see it frequently in the Old Testament. So this Levite has this concubine, and, and not that we should not say that it's approved by the Old Testament, but we see the Old Testament figures engaging in this. We know from Genesis 1 and 2 and from Jesus' own words and applying that, that that's not God's ideal for marriage, but it's there in the Old Testament. And that's what's going on here. So this Levite has himself a concubine, and she is unfaithful to him. Just kind of paint the picture of, of what the relationship is between these two people. Right. So again, she is supposed to be serving him as a wife and and that husband-wife relationship between the two. And she has rejected that. She has rebelled against that. And we don't get a whole lot of description of this here. Even grammatically, the order in which this happens is left open. I mean, does, does she commit adultery first and then leave? Or does she leave him and then commit adultery? And that's just it's it's not there. Um, most likely, it seems like she's committed adultery, and then for shame of having done it, she flees because of the potential punishment there. Uh, Leviticus 20 would t- teach us the penalty for adultery is death. Um, so she runs away. She goes to her father's home, and she stays there with dad for four months, hoping that dad will provide her, well, provide for her, but also provide shelter and safety for her from from the act that she has committed. So she goes home. She runs away, essentially. Now, he goes after her. Why is that perhaps a surprising thing for him to do? The surprise here, I mean, you're right. I mean, it is surprising. And, and it's surprising specifically because he has no reason to go after her, at least culturally speaking. Um, there's the penalty upon her. She's abandoned him. She has run away from him. The, the penalty for her actions is death. I mean, if he's going after her for any reason, the expected result that we might have would be he's seeking justice. He is seeking to bring her back to their city where she will be executed for the crime that she has committed. And that's not what we see here. Um, his response, and, and you know, verse 3 says he went to speak kindly to her and bring her back. Um, the husband's response here is to attempt to restore his wife to himself. Hmm. He's showing her mercy rather than justice. And that's a, again, that's a surprise response. It's not the response that you would expect. There is a parallel for us in that, um, that we see of God with the prophet Hosea uh, and his his prostitute wife, Gomer, um, as she would run away and Hosea would go and he would bring her back to himself. And then eventually God reveals uh, that that is his relationship with his people of Israel, that they would run off after foreign gods and idols, and he would continue to bring them back to himself. Mm. And we see that from the husband, at least initially here. Sure, and, and, and that, that that's an important thing to bring out. So it, it's not—and I appreciate what you say that—it's not maybe surprising that 
her husband arises and goes after her, but his reasoning in going after her is a bit surprising. He would have been well within his rights to have her put to death, and, and perhaps the argument could be made that he, he should have, being a Levite, he should follow the law, but he doesn't. And, and as you point out, there is that parallel in the book of Hosea where the Lord even uses this, this forgiveness between a husband and, and an unfaithful wife, where he uses that as a picture for his relationship with his people Israel. And so initially, this account, I don't know if I can say it like that, it, it seems like it's going to have a happy ending, perhaps. It, it looks like, okay, maybe, maybe we're going to get a bit of a different flavor of account from the book of Judges than we've gotten so far. But that's the initial perspective. And, and as we see the account go on, and as we place this into the context of Judges as a larger narrative, we're going to see that, well, on the surface, maybe stuff looks okay. But when we dig deeper and, and people's character comes out more fully, that same spiritual decay that we've seen due to the idolatry that's rampant in Israel is going to begin to show itself more. But, but for now, that's the scene that's been set. You've got a Levite who has a concubine. She's been unfaithful to him and has run away. He's going to go after her to try to reconcile in some way, shape, or form. And then the text turns then, so he gets to, to her. He goes to her father's house, which is where, where she's gone to. And, and now the text is going to spend quite a bit of time digging into a matter that may seem, again, a bit unfamiliar to us, Pastor Andrews. It's going to be a matter of hospitality. And, and we need to really understand it here at this point because it's going to be an important theme running throughout the text. What's, what's going on with this interaction between the Levite and his father-in-law over and over again, urging him to stay longer and longer? We don't actually know. The Bible doesn't give us the intent of the, the father-in-law here. Um, the Study Bible, our Lutheran Study Bible, makes the suggestion, and, and reasonably so, that the father may have been trying to make up for what his daughter had done. But it could simply have been the, the hospitality of that era and that time in history. Um, they were an extremely hospitable people uh, in, in many ways. Hospitality was treated with a great deal of importance, um, that you would welcome someone into your home, you would care for them, you would do everything for them that they needed to have done. And we actually see that theme kind of run throughout most of this chapter, good and bad. I mean, the what we see later in the chapter is hospitality as well, but they took it too far. So we'll get to that um, soon enough. Mm. So yeah, so he's going to provide for his son in law and for his daughter. He's going to put food before them and the servants as well and continue to do so. And yeah, for some reason just keeps urging stay, stay, stay until you get to the point where they've been there for four days, before a uh, four nights day, as we would phrase it, five days, four nights. And at this point he is he's had enough. The Levite doesn't trust dad's word anymore, um, that he'll finally let him go and he just decides we have to leave. Yeah, I mean, it, it. You know, you start, you read through it, and it does seem a bit repetitive. And you get the so. I mean, just to kind of paint the picture, then it is a, a very hospitable culture, and that certainly is what's going on. There is a great display of hospitality on the part of the father-in-law for his son-in-law, who's come to reconcile with the his daughter. 
So over and over again, you get, you know, please stay, eat, drink, be merry. You get the get the picture that this is, you know, a very festive atmosphere. And for some reason or another, the the he's just ready to go home. The Levite is, is going to go home. And, and I think just to, you know, so we make sure we understand the timeline. By the time that he ends up leaving on the fifth day, he tried to leave that morning, but he didn't. The mm-hmm. father-in-law imposed upon him to stick around during the day. Now it's getting toward evening. And the father-in-law, again, has tried to urge him to stay, but now he says, no more, I'm I'm leaving. And, and so, I mean, we, we need to understand that setting for the rest of the text moving forward, because where that, that puts them in terms of their travel plans, where they arrive, when they arrive there, that's a pretty important detail. We read up through verse 10, and and they they arrive at the town Jebus. I'm not sure if I I call it Jerusalem. <laughs> we, I know how to pronounce Jerusalem. Yeah, that's, that's what it is to us at least. Yeah, I usually call it Jebus. But Jebus. Okay, <laughs> we'll go with you. That that works. <laughs> so they they but arrive it is the at Jebus. Jebusites that live there. So. Right, right. So they get they get to Jerusalem. That's where we we left off. Pastor Andrews, anything more on on verses one through ten before I read a little farther into the, the text? Well, just a little bit more on the uh, the actual day that they're leaving there, as you're mentioning, and how that factors into what's going to come. Um, so they, the Levite is from the hill country of Ephraim, and Ephraim is the land just north of of Jerusalem, um, which belonged to the tribe of, of Benjamin there. And so it's probably 15 to 20 miles, roughly, that they're talking about journeying that day, which when you start to think about walking instead of driving as we would, you know, that would take us all 20 minutes to do. But for them, even if you put them at a good three to four mile an hour pace, that's a five to six hour walk that they have before them. So if they left in the morning, yeah, they get home at a decent hour of the day. But if they're waiting until the sun is closer to setting, that's a long trip to make in the middle of the night. And we're going to see those details, as you mentioned, coming up here and the time that is to come. Right, yeah. This is, I mean, and I think, again, it's a narrative, and we don't get that theological reflection on the part of the narrator here, but just the fact that they are leaving that late in the evening with a pretty long journey ahead of them, it just adds to the oddness of the narrative, if I can just say it very simply. It, it's It's strange, that this is the way the text is progressing. I mean, just all the details about it. You know, I mean, we, we've talked through some of the ways that, that we can make parallels, for example, with Hosea and, and the hospitality of the father-in-law. But throughout it all, there's, there's just a bit of a, a flavor to this text that even so far seems off. And the leaving later toward the afternoon, early evening, when you've got a long journey— uh, it's it just seems a bit strange, and and that flavor is going to prove it. I mean, I we know what's coming, Pastor Andrews, and, and so that flavor I think is just going to show itself more and more. So let, let's let's read a little bit farther. We're in verse eleven now of Judges chapter nineteen. When they were near Jebus, the day was nearly over, and the servant said to his master, "Come now, let us turn aside to this city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it." And his master said to him, We will not turn aside into the city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will pass on to Gibeah. 
And he said to his young man, Come, and let us draw near to one of these places, and spend the night at Gibeah or at Ramah. So they passed on and went their way. And the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. And they turned aside there to go in and spend the night at Gibeah. And he went in and sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. And behold, an old man was coming from his work in the, in the field at evening. The man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was sojourning in Gibeah. The men of the place were Benjaminites. And he lifted up his eyes and saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, Where are you going, and where do you come from? And he said to him, We are passing from Bethlehem and Judah to the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim from which I come. I went to Bethlehem and Judah, and I am going to the house of the Lord. But no one has taken me into his house. We have straw and feed for our donkeys, with bread and wine for me and your female servant, and the young man with your servants. There is no lack of anything. And the old man said, Peace be to you. I will care for all your wants. Only do not spend the night in the square. So he brought him into his house and gave the donkeys feed. And they washed their feet and ate and drank. All right, we'll pause there. So, Pastor Andrews, uh, take us into the journey. We, we've said he's, he's departing later toward the evening. He's got a long mile there. They've come to Jerusalem, and the servant says, hey, we could stop here. The master disagrees. Take us into that segment of their journey so far. Right. So, if I'm recalling correctly, Bethlehem is about five miles south of Jerusalem, which, again, at a three- or four-mile-an-hour pace, it takes them an hour or two to get there. Um, and the the master's reluctance, his hesitancy to stay at, at Jebus here is because it's not currently a town of the people of Israel. I mean, it's right there in the middle of the promised land. It's going to be the capital city in the future. But at the moment, it's occupied by the Jebusites. And they are not people of God. They are foreigners. And so he is not willing to trust them. He would much rather spend the night in a location that is filled with Israelites, filled with God's people, which when we on the surface think of this, you know, that makes sense. He's a Levite. He's a priest. He's supposed to be in, in, well, in his thinking a lot closer to the holy things of God. And so as we've seen the hospitality from the, the, the woman's father, um, where he's expecting similar hospitality from God, others in God's people, and rejecting that idea of going to the Jebusites. Yeah, I mean, it, it makes sense from a number of perspectives that he would not want to spend the night with the Jebusites, that he would want to instead go to friendly territory, a place where he knows he's going to receive hospitality. And again, not only are the, the Jebusites uh, not Israelites, but but this is, I mean, think we have to we have to think of a time when there's not going to be any sort of outdoor lights when it gets dark and so there's any number of dangers that could come about in the dark and and as it turns out that's going to be the danger that they will face so to want to spend the night in friendly territory makes sense and, and so it they get to this place finally they're going to get to Gibeah that's the goal and and that's or to Rama. Why are those are the two places that the master mentions? What's the significance of those two towns? I can't tell you what the narrator narrator's doing necessarily putting them in here, but as you mentioned at the opening of the show, uh, as this is drawing us to the idea of Saul and Samuel, 
and 1048 as the the book of First Samuel, I think it's chapter 8 and chapter 9 where that, that happens. Gibeah is the place where Saul was from, and Ramah is the place where the prophet Samuel is from. So there's a really interesting connection here, and I'm not sure it's intentional, but if it's not, it, it's quite a coincidence um, that that would come up in the text like it just did. Sure. Yeah. Again, you don't know for sure, but it does it does make a lot of sense that there could be some of those parallels going on. Now, as it turns out, the sun goes down and they're near Gibeah. So that's where they're going to stop. And you get the point that's made. This is the place where the Benjaminites are. The This town belongs to Benjamin. So there should be friendly people there. Uh, what's their What's their first attempt in terms of spending the night, Pastor Andrews? Well, they go to the square of the city, and I guess it looks like the assumption is they'd meet somebody in the square and be able to have a conversation about finding lodging with them. Um, I'm not saying this is a parallel at all, but it's similar to when Joseph and Mary arrive in Bethlehem and they're just looking for a place to stay. You're, you're going to a new town, you're, you're looking for that hospitality and as we mentioned earlier, here the Levite was expecting specifically to find that hospitality among his own people, and he doesn't find it. Mm. Um, he goes to the square of the city, which we might think of like the, the common gathering space where public events would happen. Maybe they had the market there during the day, those kinds of things. And they don't find any hospitality. They end up with the idea that they're going to just have to spend the night sleeping in the square. Mm, yeah, yeah. So the idea would have been this this hospitality, which has been shown to them so far in the text at the father-in-law's house, would be extended wider than that. So perhaps, that think of that same father-in-law, he might not impose upon just anyone to stick around at his house for so long, but he would have been a culturally accustomed to extending hospitality even to strangers, and particularly when those strangers are of the same people. And so that's what this Levite and those with him are expecting to find in Gibeah. So far, they haven't found any. They're there in the town square. That's where they're planning to spend the night. But something will change, as we have read already, and we will pick that up on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFU. We're going to take that short break right now. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233. 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, August 11th, and we are studying Judges chapter 19, verses 1 through 30. We've got Pastor Steve Andrews with us. He serves at St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Lee's Summit, Missouri. Pastor Andrews, prior to the break, we were looking at the Levite, his concubine, the people with them, 
who have made it to Gibeah, which is in friendly territory. They're in the territory of Benjamin right now. But so far, they have not received any hospitality from anyone there. They're just in the town square for the night, and they think they're going to spend the night there until an old man comes in from his work in the field. And we're told he's a man from the hill country of Ephraim. He's sojourning in Gibeah. What what does that mean? We skipped over that word earlier. What does it mean that he was sojourning in Gibeah? Yeah, you're right, we did. Uh, So a sojourner, to sojourn, is to stay in a place that is not your home. Um, So that the Levite is a sojourner in the hill country of Ephraim means it's not where he's from, but he's spending a period of time there. And really this sets the old man up as almost the opposite of the Levite, because uh, he is from the hill country of Ephraim, but he's away from there. He's sojourning in this city here in, in Gibeah. Uh, so, yeah, just an interesting thing. And the other interesting note is just what a description uh, that, that we have here. He's an old man. That's all, all we get to hear of him. Yeah, you, you and I were talking during the break that we don't get anyone named here. You've got a Levite, you've got his concubine, you've got some servants. Uh, we're going to have some worthless fellows, as the ESV translates it later. You've got this old man. Uh, no one no one gets named here, which I'm not entirely sure what to do with. I think it does fit with the picture that's painted for us in this section of the book of Judges, that everybody's just doing what's right in their own eyes because there's no king. And regardless of the name, that's just the general flavor of this time in Israel's history. So nobody's named. It is it is perhaps a bit ironic that this old man who's only sojourning in Gibeah is the one to offer them hospitality. He's not actually from Gibeah. He's just living there for a time, but he's the only one from or who's currently residing in the town of Gibeah that actually is willing to offer him hospitality, which is is a detail that is probably going to become important as we move forward in this text. But before we get there, you you get this note of the interaction between this old man sojourning in Gibeah and the Levite in terms of how this hospitality. So take us into this this interaction that invites us again to this picture of hospitality. Yes, the old man just strikes up the conversation you know, which is good to do, something that is good for us to do today is we see people interact with them. And uh, at first, that's what's happening here. He's engaged in conversation. You know, where are you going? Where do you come from? Uh, so the Levite responds and gives them a bit of their backstory and what's going on and includes the detail we haven't had yet, which is that he is going to the house of Yahweh. Mm. Um, and that, as we would think of, would be a reference to the tabernacle, um, at some point in the era of the judges, ends up in Shiloh. So it sounds like then, reasonably, that that's where he's headed. Um, again, that's the first we've had of this detail. So why he's heading to Shiloh? Well, it could simply be that as a Levite, he's no longer wanting to be a sojourner. He's headed back to where his duties fall. Um, maybe he's up for duty and caring for the tabernacle or something of that sort. Maybe he's going there to offer um, a sacrifice for the sin of his concubine uh, and and offer that up on her behalf. We don't really know. That's something we we didn't pick up on earlier. We mentioned it, but at this point, they're reconciled to each other. I feel like I should say that. So it's out there. Uh, So they've they've been reconciled. They had that opportunity to 
as we saw with the father-in-law, be married together in, in a company of people. Mm. Um, and then the old man, well, before we get to the old man again, the, the Levite says that they don't lack anything. They have all that they need. And so he's declined the invitation. And the old man's response to him, is, I think it's it's humorous. Uh, the group tells him that they have no needs, so he says, okay, I'll care even for all your wants. As we like to make that distinction today between needs and wants and trying to teach our children about that, the value of knowing those, the difference in those words. Here, the old man just wants to show hospitality. He wants to care for this this group of travelers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I appreciate you bringing out that at this point, the Levite and his concubine are, are reconciled from all at least outward appearances. And I think, you know, again, we've kind of been, because we're, we're about to read what is really just a very difficult text to read. But from all outward appearances so far, this is not, it's not the worst text we've encountered in the book of Judges. There's been some really bad stuff that we've seen from the individual judges who are named earlier in the book. We've seen some very serious sins. Jephthah and Samson particularly come to mind right away when we think about how, outright the author of the book of Judges puts their sins in front of us, and, and we've been able to see that in full display, here so far, it's it's not quite as obvious that, that what's going on exactly. It, it does seem to, again, it's a very generic term, but it seems to be progressing toward a, a happy sort of ending. You know, things are, are going reasonably well, it seems, but pretty soon, things are going to really explode on us, and the text is going to get very difficult as, as we encounter some of the worst sin, I think, that, that you would see in, in the scriptures from a, from a human perspective and the way that it's going to hurt our neighbor. And any further comments on the verses we read so far, Pastor Andrew, before we move into the, the next couple? I don't want to over-skip that phrase the old man uses, peace be to you. I mean, it's a common greeting probably in their culture at that time. We think of uh, the Jewish culture today and their use of the word shalom, which was that Hebrew word peace. Um, But it it mirrors so well to the expression that Jesus uses with his disciples in the New Testament. Um, It's a wonderful phrase that can, can get so much deeper. It can point us to reconciliation, as we've been talking about in this text, and we can think of then the reconciliation that we have with God as Jesus' death on the cross wins that peace for us. I mean, we think of a peace treaty, uh, that, that when you have peace, you're not at war. There is no longer war between God and man. We are reconciled to God. The old man probably doesn't have that in his mind as he uses the phrase, but it is a wonderful phrase for us in the Church, and it's why we as Christians, often even in our worship, have that sharing of the peace kind of idea, because we are at peace with God. Um, there, There is no longer that guilt of sin hanging over us, even as the devil may try all he may. Um, we have that, that reconciliation that comes from Christ, and so it's something to just as we're about to launch into some really dark text, something I wanted to bring out and highlight first. Mm. So let's let's keep reading then. Again, at, at this point, it does seem a very peaceful situation. The word shalom isn't the worst word to consider when we get verses 1 through 21. It seems that things have been restored, but that changes very quickly. Judges 19, verse 22. 
As they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. They said to the old man, the master of the house, Bring out the man who came into your house, that we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. Now I'm going to pause there, Pastor Andrews. Again, very dark text, no doubt. Some of the, the hardest hardest and darkest words in, in the scriptures, for sure, when it comes to the sins of human beings against each other. So it, it takes a very, literally, it does take a very dark turn. It's dark. And, and we get a picture here, I think, of why this old man, who is not from Gibeah, seemed very concerned about bringing these strangers into his own home while they're living, while they're staying in Gibeah. So, uh, Pastor Andrews, just take us into, I mean, what, what's happening? Some of, some, of these, some of this language is a bit euphemistic here, or particularly the matter of uh, what does it mean to, to know him? Just make sure we understand what's happening in this section of the text. Sure. No, you're right. Um, as we think of, of why this old man was so willing to show that hospitality, it certainly could be connected to the idea that he knew what would happen. He's been sojourning in Gabea. He knows the people there. And to know that they wouldn't be safe to stay out in the city square, he's invited them into his home. Um, but as you're asking here in the text, what are some of these, these words we're looking at? Um, you know, we have this word, no. And we we think of no, and we connect it to knowledge, and so we know something. Uh, yes, it means that, but in the scriptures, it, it is a it has another meaning as well, which is the idea of having sex. Um, and so you see that, for example, in Genesis chapter four, verse one, that Adam knew his wife Eve, and they conceived and had a son. Um, we see it again uh, in Matthew chapter one, verse twenty-five, that Joseph did not know his his wife, uh, his betrothed, Mary, until um, she had given birth to Jesus. So it's just, those are two examples. It's used significantly more often, and it's actually quite surprising to see how often it shows up in this manner. But that's what this is getting at. So this is an attempt uh, to, to rape the man. That's their demand. Uh, they don't want him to come out of the house so they can have some conversations. And, you know, we would think of having a beer and, you know, a campfire or something. This is this is a lot grotesker than that. And so this is a reminder here. This is Gabeah, which is part of the land of Benjamin. This is one of the tribes of God's people, the, the Benjaminites, Benjamin being the second favorite son of Jacob. They should be hospitable. They should be loving. They should be caring. And instead, they are about to commit the same exact sin that we saw in Sodom and Gomorrah back in Genesis chapter 19, I think that was. Um, they beat on the door of the home of a sojourner. So here it's the old man. Back then it was Lot. 
They demand to rape the man that was visiting. So here it's the Levite. Back in Genesis, it was the angels, um, the one that is receiving that hospitality. Yeah, the the picture of this is, I mean, sodomy has come into the the people of Israel. And, And again, this is where the text has taken this very dark turn, and we see just how bad it was for the people of Israel during the time of Judges that this was happening mostly unchecked uh, among the people of Israel. This is this is not something, at least in Benjamin, in the, the town of Gibeah, this was just sort of commonplace. And I do, again, the, the text isn't specific about that, but you do wonder if the old man didn't know that something like this might happen, and that's why he had invited them in in the first place. So, so he initially, now the old man, we want to make sure we know who's doing what here. So the old man, who is the master of the house, he responds first and says, no, <laughs> do not do this wicked thing. But even in his response, well, the way that he tries to get out of it shocks us a bit too, I think. Well, he responds to their wickedness with wickedness. Mm. So he, he points out that the, the demand that they have made is sinful, and he reiterates that importance of hospitality, and it would be a terrible thing to break hospitality. And so, again, the, the cultural idea of hospitality here is good for us to understand, and really this is almost a biblical discussion of it, as we think of the, the New Testament instructions of Jesus. Our task is not to care for ourselves. I, I'm not supposed to care for me, but I'm supposed to care for my neighbor. This almost takes it a step further, um, that it is all the more important to care even for those who are outside of my own household as well. But what doesn't fit there, as I said, he responds to wickedness with wickedness, and we saw this with Lot as well in Genesis, mm. is that their conclusion is to go ahead and, and give in, to make a concession to the sin of the, the crowd, um, mm. to allow your neighbor, to willfully allow your neighbor to commit a sin, is not loving your neighbor. You're not loving your neighbor by aiding them in their sin. Um, so even though they likely believed, by they I mean Lot and our old man here, that they were doing the only thing they could do to protect their guest, it doesn't make it the right action here. Mm. Uh, and and back in Lot's case, the angels were there to intercede. Uh, they struck the, the crowd with blindness. But there is no such help here. And this mm. time we are left simply to the the account as it happens. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think that's a that's a picture of the, what we said at the very beginning. You know, in those days, there's no king in Israel. Everyone's doing what is right in his own eyes. Well, where does that lead? It, it leads to this. It, it leads to the violation of, of men and women alike. It, it leads to a Levite who, of anyone, should know better than, than what he does here. Because... So the, the old man has, has, as you said, responded to wickedness with wickedness of his own. You know, no, don't violate the man, violate someone else. That, that's no good. That's, that's not any better at all. That's even worse. There's no hospitality. There's no love in that at all. And, and now what's going to happen? Well, now the Levite, the Levite is going to step up and, and just take matters into his own hands, and he throws his concubine out there. I mean, what, is, what does it look like? 
when there's no king in Israel and everyone's just doing what is right in his own eyes and it's just rampant idolatry everywhere, it looks like this. It, it's, it's ugly. It's, it's absolutely awful sins, not only against God, but against our neighbors. And, and this should, like, we should, we should look on this in horror and, and recognize just how, how bad it is. And, and not horror in the sense of judgment over them, but horror as to recognize this is where my sin would lead me to, is into unspeakable sins. It's, it's, it's ugly, Pastor Andrews. That's, that's just, I don't know how else to say it. It's ugly. You're spot on, and you just took it exactly where I wanted to take it. I think some people would, as we get to verse 25, as they read this text, would would come into doubt of the reconciliation between the Levite and the concubine. Um, and that's fair. I mean, but I don't think it's valid. I, I do think that they were reconciled. I think instead what we see here is the rejection of the commandment, again, that I was mentioning from Jesus in the New Testament, that we are supposed to love our neighbor, our sin points us inward. Um, we have that old old Latin phrase, incurvatus, um, that our sin is curved in on ourselves. And so instead of looking to care for another, he's looking to care for himself. The Levite has been reconciled to his concubine. They are restored again. There was forgiveness had. But as we get to this new moment in their life together, the Levite looks at the situation and just says, if it's going to be her or me, well, it's going to be her. Hmm. It's his sinful pride. It's his care for himself instead of those around him. So he ends up using his his wife as a shield, a human shield, that she would take this violence instead of him. Hmm. Yeah. So yeah, a very dark, and it points to the nature deep nature of our own sin, and that applies just as much, I think, to us as it does to this man here, because we do this. Hmm. You know, how often do we put ourselves before our neighbor? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, particularly in the relationship of a husband and a wife, for the husband to say, you... I'm going to put you in front of me as my shield. That's the exact opposite of what St. Paul writes in, in Ephesians chapter 5, that the husband is to sacrifice his life for the wife. And so, yeah, the, the reconciliation that had taken place, now that the husband, it seems, just tosses it aside and, and says, nah, I'm, I'm done with that now. And, and if it's you, uh, the way you said it, I think it was perfect. If it's you or me, it's going to be you. And so he, he throws his, his concubine out to those who would violate her, and they do. Over and over again, the text says, again, it's, it's just terribly dark what happens. And this is, this is the picture of the time of the judges when there's idolatry and that's it. This is what happens to people. People are hurt because, I mean, idolatry, uh, idolatry false doctrine hurts people. It, it literally does. And that's at least one thing that we should see from this text here in, in Judges 19. And, and to the point now, the, the where we, we end and we're, we're running short on time, I want to make sure we read the rest of the text. The, by the time the, the morning is done, they violated her multiple times. They finally left her. She goes where her master was, and, and she just lies down, and, and, and as we see, she dies. So let's, let's read the end of the text here. Judges 19, now in verse 27. And her master rose up in the morning, and when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, Get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey, and the man rose up and went away to his home. 
And when he entered his house, he took a knife, and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into twelve pieces, and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, Such a thing has never happened or or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. That's where chapter 19 ends. That's where our text for today ends. So, Pastor Andrews, what has happened so far has been just horrible. And now, I mean, this this resolution, if, if there was sort of a, a happy ending that maybe we were trying to get a glimmer of in those first 20 verses of the text, all of that's been shattered by this point. And, and now the text not only is, is horrible, but it, it just gets downright strange. Well, I mean, take us into, now, now we get a picture more of the Levite and, and what's going on in his mind. What is what does he do? What's going on here? <laughs> sure. Well, if we didn't know it already, we just learned how little he really cared for her, at least in comparison to how much he cared for himself. And so the change is, is quite startling. He went from showing mercy to her and willing to receive her back, um, sparing her from the penalty of death, to basically giving her the penalty of death himself, um, abandoning her without any pity for her in this moment whatsoever. And then after the deed is done, after she's dead, he doesn't take her body with him to give her a proper burial, a funeral. Instead, he, he does what a Levite is quite skilled at doing, which is he sacrifices her. I don't know that we'd use the word sacrifice in this context because he's not offering her up to the Lord. Uh, but he's used to cutting up animals as part of his job. And he treats his wife here the same way. And he cuts her into these pieces to send out into the different tribes. So we've got 12 tribes of Israel. Each one of them gets a piece of her. Um, we're not told what message may have gone with the delivery of these things. Um, but, yeah, he, he's turned his knife on her in order to, to make a point. And unfortunately, the text doesn't truly reveal what his point is. Um, is he seeking revenge? Is he seeking repentance? Uh, and we don't actually learn that. We do see him again in the next chapter, and so your guest tomorrow will be able to revisit some of this. Yeah, we, we get a little bit of, of a response from him, although as we'll see tomorrow, it, it's it's not going to be a, perhaps a, the entirely honest account that we would like. But I I think the the point that I would I would highlight particularly with what you said was that what he does to her is just terribly ironic in the sense, and I mean terrible and ironic both in that 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 he would do what he was normally used to doing in terms of sacrificing animals, and now he takes that same knife and he uses it to cut up this fellow human being, one that he knew as his own concubine, his own wife, he does that to her. Rather than giving her any sort of honorable burial, he, he cuts her up and sends her to the 12 tribes of Israel to let come what may of this, and, and we'll see the fallout from this in the rest of the book of Judges. And it, it doesn't get much better, to be honest. It, it, it stays pretty ugly. And, and so, I mean, this is the, this is the picture of the, the people of Israel during the time of Judges. It's, it's downright awful. 
what has happened with them forsaking the Lord. And, and we've seen the full consequences of it, and it's only going to get worse as the, as the text progresses. Pastor Andrews, we've got about three minutes here on the morning. We've, we've, express, we've seen the full range, I think, of, of emotions within this text. We've, we've seen very gracious moments, but we've seen the darkest moments. And, and that's where we are right now as we leave this text today. Help us through this text, as we think about it, to, to place it into the larger scriptural narrative and, and to see still, even in texts like this, the hope that is ours in Christ. We look at a text like this and we're horrified. And in verse 30, the people of Israel were horrified. The tribes responded as they should. Um, and, you know, but... That last verse in the entire book, so in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what is right in his own eyes. That's not just this text. That verse, that phrase of our sin, I mean, that applies across history. This darkness that we see here that horrifies us, our sins are no better just because we place different values on sin doesn't mean that the Lord does. Our, our sin is grotesque. And on our own, we would meet a fate similar to her, beaten and broken and battered over sin until we die. And, and God has chosen to rescue us from that and instead took that beating and battering upon himself as Jesus Christ offers up his life on the cross in our place, he takes our grotesque sins, whether it's the ones in this text or the ones from your life, he takes those sins upon himself. He took those sins upon himself. They're already gone. They're already removed from you and from me, and we now have this reconciliation, this restoration, this peace in Christ. Uh, and so as we have this chapter that has a focus on reconciliation and the darkness of mankind's sin, we see that in the picture of, of us now uh, between God and ourselves. There is a focus on reconciliation even in the midst of the darkness of our sin. Pastor Steve Andrews is pastor at St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Lee's Summit, Missouri, helping us this morning with Judges 19, verses 1 through 30. Pastor Andrews, thanks for being our guest today. You're welcome. Blessings to you all. The picture in the book of Judges here is ugly. We know our own sin is ugly. Thanks be to God that he has provided reconciliation to us through his son, Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.